Friends, we want to move along. We had a wonderful sharing time. And uh, I was encouraged by the speakers while I was away. I was worried because they are so much briefer than I am and get to the point so much quicker. I was in, I was uh, reminded uh, by one of my sons, I won't tell you which, that they set a high bar in brevity that the church was getting used to getting to lunch while the lunch was still warm. And so I apologize in advance. <laughs> that all goes a long ways to saying, it'll be a while. I'm, I'm back. Okay. <laughs> so. So uh, it's good to be here with you. I appreciate those who were able to speak to the 12, our summer series. Uh, it was wonderful that we had Jonathan and Ian, both whose names are descended from the name of our, one of our apostles, John. Ian is a form of the name John as well as John Greer. His name is John as well. And so we had John and we had Peter and we had Matthew, the tax collector, if you remember, it seems a long time ago that I was weary and half goofy coming out of VBS and I did a children's centric service focusing on Nathaniel and his friend, Nathaniel, an honest skeptic hearing about Jesus. Well, today's message is going to be the other half of that equation. We began with the friend Nathaniel and this week we'll be looking at his friend who shared Jesus with him, and that will be the Apostle Philip. Now, this is an important uh, message because it speaks to all of us where we live today. Remember, our theme for the series, the 12, comes from John chapter 20, 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Now, how did Jesus send them? He sent them, as we see today, He sent them out by faith, not by sight. These apostles, these chosen ones, these sent ones of Jesus, His ambassadors to a lost world with the good news of the gospel, they lived lives of faith, though all the world seemed to be against them. They were the twelve ordinary people, and yet at that point in history, they were the most important people in the history of the world because they were carrying the good news of the gospel. They were Jesus' plan A. He had no plan B. He sent them with the good news of the gospel to make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples. Until this very day, you are a recipient of the good news of the gospel of Jesus handed down to us, beginning with the apostles and continuing in your life and Lord willing, through your life, as you share Jesus with others. And they come to hear and know Him as well, by faith, not by sight. Well, this is a challenge today because we're talking about Philip, a man who, as we see him in Scripture, is particularly affected by what he sees, how he perceives the world around him. As we look at Philip today, the first point we want to see is his story is really told to us in depth in the Gospel of John, just as we wouldn't know anything about Nathaniel unless John in the last of the Gospels written had recorded more about Nathaniel. It's appropriate then that John also records more for us about Philip, who's Nathaniel's particular friend. And as Jesus sends them out two by two, Nathaniel and Philip were always partners in sharing the gospel as well. First point today is that Philip sees Jesus as the Messiah. He perceived that Jesus of Nazareth, 
son of the carpenter Joseph, was the long-awaited Messiah. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. And to Philip, it seems that Jesus meets all the criteria of the Messiah. Now, though this story begins in the south of the land of Israel, down where John the Baptist was preaching and teaching and baptizing down in the deserts in the wilderness of Judea, we see many of the men of Galilee down there following John the Baptist. These were men who were seeking the truth and looking and longing for the Messiah. We know down there that we had Peter and his brother Andrew. We had James and his brother John, fishermen who were partners with Peter and Andrew. We also see in Judea, people from Galilee, Nathaniel from Cana, and Philip from Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida, I want to show you where it is on a map. It's very close to Capernaum. As you see that map of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, the headquarters of Jesus' Galilean ministry, is there on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida is on the northeast corner just across the Jordan River. And you see an actual picture of the Jordan River flowing into the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River, remember, was a border between the territory of Herod Antipas and his half-brother Herod Philip. Herod Antipas was very hard on Jesus and the followers of Jesus. He was very hard as well on uh, on uh, Greek uh, uh, religion, though he himself didn't live a Jewish life at all. But across the border, his brother, half-brother Philip, Herod Philip, he was okay with Greeks. He was okay with Jews. Everybody sort of lived and let live in Herod Philip's territory. This is where Bethsaida's at. In fact, it was not only an important village, but during the time of Jesus, it grew to become a city because Herod Philip chose it as his winter capital. He would be up on the Golan Heights uh, during the summer, but in winter, it snows up there by Mount Hermon. And so he would come down to the lake and make his home in Bethsaida. Bethsaida, you know, Beth always means house of. Bethsaida likely means house of fish. House of fishing. So we know it was a fishing headquarters as well. Many fishermen live there. The next picture is actually a picture from the ruins of Bethsaida. It's fascinating. We know from the ruins of this house from Jesus' time that fishermen live there because of the net weights and the hooks and so forth. And there is a recreation of it. It's a classic home from Jesus' time. Much like the home that Peter and Andrew lived in and that Jesus was often a guest in. It would be built around a common courtyard. There would be a kitchen. There would be multiple rooms for different generations of the family. When Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms, I go to prepare a place for you. This was the type of home that his hearers would have heard. This is the type of home that Philip grew up in. Remember, this is a more open Greek Jewish mixture type society. So it's no wonder that Philip is the only one of the 12 Jewish apostles that we know primarily by his Greek name. No doubt Philip also had a Jewish name, but we're never told it. We know Peter, Petros, that's a Greek name. It's a form of the Aramaic nickname Jesus gave G, uh, P Peter, uh, Cephas. But we know his Jewish name as well, Simon, Simeon, Shimon. It was a very Jewish name. Well, we don't know Philip's Jewish name. He's primarily known as a Hellenized or a Greek 
Jew. And that makes sense because he's from Beth Seda, the house of the fisherman. Could have been a house very near the house of Philip himself. We just don't know. As I said, we meet Philip and Nathaniel first down in Cana, very likely as followers of John the Baptist. And as Jesus has already had contact with John and others, and they wanted to learn more about Jesus, now we see Jesus for the first time not respond to people coming to Him, but Jesus actively going out and calling somebody. If you'd asked any of us a short while ago, who was the first disciple that Jesus called to follow Him? Very few of us would have realized it was Philip. Philip is the first one Jesus goes directly to and issues a call to. We find that in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Just as Philip had seen and been satisfied that Jesus met all the criteria of the long-awaited Messiah, the Anointed One, the coming King that would deliver God's people Israel from all of their troubles and bring in the Messianic Kingdom, he saw, he heard, his senses told him, this was the one. And so he comes and he extends the same invitation to his friend Nathaniel. Come and see. Come see for yourself. So already, even at the point where Philip is exercising faith in Jesus as the Messiah, he's still depending on his senses, what he sees and hears that Jesus measures up to his expectations. Well, this is wonderful. It's a good way to start. He puts his faith in Jesus. We don't see Philip again, though, until much further into Jesus' ministry. They're now following Christ. And interestingly, every time a question comes of whether somebody has an appointment with Jesus or whether there's accommodations or food to be doled out, Philip is in the middle of the story. That tells us that just as Judas Iscariot held on to the money bag, the common purse of the apostolic band, it seems that Philip may have played the role of Mater D or Major Domo. He was the manager of the group that looked out for all the details that it took to have a traveling band of Jesus and 12 apostles and all the people who followed and cooked and cleaned and found accommodations. It seems that Philip was a detailed man that was right in the middle of all of that. Now, some of you are detailed people. We need you. We need you on ministry teams. We need you in leadership because you are detail-oriented. You are a number cruncher. You are a bean counter. I've never understood what beans were counting, but you're a bean counter and you, you keep all the figures in your heads. You know, the treasures, well, they... They're generally descended from Judas, let's be honest. But the, the moderators of the church, they're more like Philip, you know. They, they, they're the detail people, keeping all of us organized and moving in the right direction. Well, Philip, when Jesus gives him a problem, and it's a detail problem, Philip believes he has found a problem. He sees a problem that is too big even for Jesus. 
Jesus throws it to Philip, manager of the group. Philip, do this. And Philip says, can't be done. Can't be done. Well, the problem is that this often happens to us. We see a problem. We see a problem. We perceive it. It's with our earthly senses. And we think it's too much for God. Too much. Whether it be a pandemic, or a drought, or a health crisis, or a relational crisis, a broken family, it's too much even for God. How quickly we depend on our human senses and we don't even pray about it. Philip is our example of this. And of all places, it's Jesus faced with the multitude, an enormous multitude in the wilderness away from any of the cities where people could have had shelter and food and night was coming quick. And we know the result was the feeding of the 5,000. Well, Philip is in the middle of this. Before we get there, I just want to remind you of something, the way that Philip perceived the world, the way that many of us do as well. Thirty-some years ago, Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And though Stephen Covey is from a Latter-day Saint background, the book had many biblical principles in it. He talked about, in the entire book, the theme of the book is that effective people see the world differently than the rest of us. They perceive the possibilities rather than the problems. And that many of you, focusing on problems, you miss the possibility of solutions. He said there's two mindsets. There's a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset. And he popularized this, but now you see it everywhere in economics, in relationships. You see people talking about scarcity versus abundance mindsets. Simply put, a person with a scarcity mindset believes that all good things in this world, whether it be love, money, health, anything good, it's scarce. There's not enough of it. It's hard to get. It's even harder to hang on to. And so you have to fight for every bit. It's a, it's a outlook on life, the scarcity outlook, the scarcity mindset that inevitably leads to stress, anxiety, and a fundamental selfishness of life. You are not willing to give. You only want to get and hang on to every last thing because you don't feel there's enough of anything. The scarcity mindset. Oh boy, we all experienced that just a number of short months ago. We heard there was a pandemic. And for some reason, someone got it through their mind that there wasn't enough toilet paper. You remember that? Oh, but there was. There was no shortage. But the scarcity mindset led everyone to race to buy those giant Kirkland Costco. I know, I, everybody storing up toilet paper. It was just, and it led to shortages and anxiety. It wasn't a problem of supply. It was a problem of perception. Scarcity. A scarcity versus an abundance mindset. Well, let's see where Philip falls in that Outlook on life. A little further along in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, the great multitude is following Jesus in the wilderness. You know, you look at that multitude, what should have Philip been thinking? This is amazing. Jesus 
has hit the big time. Look at this. 5,000 men plus women and children. That could be a crowd of 10, 15, 20,000 people. And Jesus gets to share the good news with all of them. This is the greatest thing ever. But not Philip. Philip is anxious. Philip is worried. Philip is, is shaking his head. Verse, uh, John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, <laughs> why Philip? He says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. 200 denarii, it says in the original language. 200 days wages, eight months of working and having a Sabbath off wouldn't be enough for everybody not only not to have a meal, but a single bite of a little cheap barley biscuit is not enough. Can't be done, Jesus. How many times you've been in a board meeting or a meeting at work or somewhere where a problem arises and there's somebody with the gift of Philip of seeing the problem but only the problem. And they're the first to cry out, impossible, can't be done. <laughs> but remember who Jesus, Jesus was asking Philip, how can we do this? And he's testing him. Why testing Philip? Because Philip had already shown and exhibited through his ministry that this was his mindset. And Jesus wanted him to move beyond that scarcity mindset. Can't be done. Well, you're saying, well, then Andrew's the hero of the story because he brought that little boy. No, when Andrew shows up, he says, here's a kid with his lunch. Not going to make a difference. Can't be done. Andrew had the same outlook, but at least he brought the boy to Jesus because he was the great evangelist bringing people to Jesus over and over. To me, the hero is the little boy. He says, there's a problem. Here's my little God. You can do a lot with it. Because that's the abundance mindset. We have Jesus. Jesus in any problem is the answer. Jesus has the authority, the ability. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There is no problem too hard for God. We're reminded of this in the wonderful passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, talk about people with problems. Problems too big. A fallen nation taken into captivity. In Jeremiah chapter 32, he writes, Ah, sovereign Lord, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for You. And later, God answers that. That faith that nothing is too hard for God, God responds, verse 26, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? No, it's not. No, it's not. And friends, if you're in the agricultural world in these days, there is cause if you depend only on sight for stress, anxiety, and worry. It's been a dry year. It's a hard year. But in our travels over the last month, we have seen so many different situations. We begin our travels in the South where people... Don't exercise faith like farmers here do. They are farmers in the irrigated southern Alberta area. And they have a guarantee 
of six inches of water. What could you do with six inches of guaranteed water on your crop every year? It has a cost to it, and they often don't even need that six inches, but it's there, it's guaranteed. And as hard as it is here, we drove through Saskatchewan where it's a complete wipeout in many areas. The harvest never came and they just bailed what they could and the bales were meager and few and far between. If we only trusted our eyes, the problem would seem too big. We have to remember that we have a God who loves us and cares for us and there's nothing too hard for Him. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 Philippians 4.19. It's on a plaque in my office if you notice it in there. The plaque is kind of ragged. It's fallen off the wall a few times. It's chipped and broken. But it means a lot to me because it says, My God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. This passage comes right after Paul has talked about how it's important for us to, to be sowers. That God loves a cheerful giver. And that God will always supply what we need to be generous. Paul dealt a lot with people who didn't have much, but were willing to give everything they had. And God's blessing was poured out on them abundantly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul dealing with gathering a large collection for the people who were drought stricken in the land of Israel. I'll begin in verse 6, a little higher up. It says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. (laughs) That's our part. No matter what we see, to be generous and to give. Because God will do His part. We often stop there, but we need to continue because it says God will do His part and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God will provide. God does it. And that's a wonderful thought and wonderful thing to take to heart, especially in a dry year like this. All grace abounds to us. Though Philip thought the problem was too big, he needed to learn to trust his heart and the one he was with, not only his eyes. This comes to a head in the upper room. On the very night Jesus was going to be handed over to be crucified, Jesus was teaching them in the upper room. Important teaching to take to heart His last words with them before He suffered the following day. And Jesus shares in John chapter 14 some beautiful things. In fact, He tells them that He Himself is the only way to the Father. Jesus says in verse 6 of John 14, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Of all passages, to learn that Philip sees Jesus as somehow less than God, you wouldn't expect it in the upper room following this amazing passage. But that's what we find. Philip disappointingly not yet getting it who Jesus really is. We know he accepted Jesus as the anointed coming king chosen by God to save Israel, the Messiah. But what had become apparent 
throughout his ministry that he was the only begotten Son of God, that he was divine himself, that he himself is God, the Word become flesh. And yet Philip, depending on his eyes, was yet to see it. We see here in verse 8, or Jesus continuing in uh, verse 7, he said, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How encouraging is that? Jesus says, you know God. You know me. You know God. You've been with God. And then Philip, wanting to see the father, says this in verse 8. He says, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, verse 9, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. This is almost verbatim what Jesus said to his enemies when they wanted to stone him for claiming that he was God himself. Jesus said, look with your eyes, look at the proof, let the miracles teach you who I am. Because Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now that emblem you see on the screen, that's a traditional emblem in the church of the Trinity. An unbroken line, you see distinctly three parts, but it's all one unity. And this is how Scripture depicts God. The triune God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one God, one divine essence. If you can understand it, you misunderstand it. And by that I mean this is beyond human comprehension. We give examples like the three-leaf clover and the egg with the white and the yolk and the shell and water being steam and ice and liquid. All of those kind of point in the right direction, but all of them fall far short. The triune God, the Trinity, and that term wasn't even coined until the year 210 A.D. when Tertullian, in defending the biblical teaching of the triune God, used that term. It's a Latin term, Trinitas. And we have embraced it, the Trinity, to describe the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, and three persons. Philip, depending only on his eyes, didn't get it. He didn't realize that the face that he had gazed on for the past three years was the very face of God. But it is. That's who Jesus is. As taught to us in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. <laughs> you see God in the face of Jesus. The only begotten God, God, the Son of God, the Word become flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus 
is God. The Father is in Him and He is in the Father. And through faith, brothers and sisters, we are in Christ. The blessedness of that. So using Philip as an example, I love to see these men, these ordinary men's examples. But in Philip, he's almost too much of an example, isn't he? He's the time where we fall short in the area of faith and we want to live our lives daily in the here and now only by sight. Ruling our lives by what we can afford according to the bottom line, not according to God's super abundant blessing which is available to us. The grace of God which meets all of our needs. We want to live beyond sight alone. We want to walk by faith. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Jesus was sent to live a life of faith. As He said more than once, the works He did, the miracles He performed, He performed them by faith. Not His own power as the Son of God, but the power of the Father. It was all of faith. Jesus pioneered the life of faith that He wants you to follow. Remember, faith isn't about sight. The biblical definition from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Faith. Trusting God. That saving relationship with God is what we live our life by. One day, friends, the time of faith, it'll be done. It'll come to completion because we will see Jesus face to face. As Ken mentioned a little earlier in the service, his Aunt Ruth would love to be in heaven. I see that theme among our senior saints that begins in us when we're young believers but grows stronger as the years go by. We get homesick for heaven and we want to see Jesus face to face. We want to see the nail prints in His hands that are there because of His love for us. We have walked by faith, but we're ready to come home. We're ready to come home. And that's the reality that awaits each one of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, speaking of this life before heaven, he says in verse 6, Therefore we're always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This world, we're living by faith, not by sight. And though it may appear grim sometime, though as we get older, our physical faculties begin to fail us, we shouldn't lose heart. We shouldn't lose heart. That's Paul's encouragement just the chapter before in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes. This is that outlook again, that mindset, that life outlook, scarcity or abundance. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, scarcity of resources, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
So before the worship team closes, I ask you this final question. Where are your eyes fixed today? What is your outlook on life? What is your mindset? Is it based in this world alone? What this world offers? What resources you have physically and mentally, financially, health-wise? Or are you depending on our God? Our God, the Creator of heaven and earth, for whom nothing is too hard, who wants to pour out blessing on you and provide abundantly all that you need to be generous on every occasion. Because that abundance outlook, it allows us to be generous with our love and our time, all of our resources as we give our lives to others for the sake of Jesus. Where are your eyes today? Are you living by faith or by sight? Let's pray, and as we pray, I'll call upon the worship team to come for our closing song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come alongside our brother in the faith, Philip, Philip who had a Greek name, though he was a Jewish man, a name that means lover of horses. Lord, we don't know much about Philip, but we know his outlook on life was very practical, very pragmatic. He believed what he could see. And Lord, sometimes those problems seemed insurmountable. But Lord, I'm sure Philip, when he saw the risen Lord, as Doubting Thomas said, my Lord and my God, he realized he had been walking with God himself as he walked by Jesus' side. Lord, Philip, who later in life, early among the other apostles, gave his life witnessing the faith he had in Jesus. Lord, this Philip moved from living by sight to living by faith. Lord, you know we need to do the very same thing. It's hard. There's so much going on in the world around us, so much that seeks to make us fearful and timid when we need to be faithful and trusting and joyous and generous and bold. Lord, in all these things, we commit our lives into Your hands. Give us Your resources, Your blessing, and Your love to use them correctly. Father, this is our prayer. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.